0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive
1: Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Once upon a time, there was music on the radio, but then the music started fading out. First one radio station, then another, then another, until there was almost no music to hear and people started MacGyvering workarounds. One of the people who came up with a workaround was Hawa Abdi Hassan, a young woman who lived in a village outside Mogadishu,
2: Somalia. We used to use a memory card, fill the memory card with music, and listen to it from our phones. In her home, as she cooked and cleaned, Hawa
1: would listen to the great Somali singers, songs that entered through the ears, but then did strange things to the body— Made your heart contract at certain moments, but at others, made your step lighter. Made you feel like your worries could, in fact, be
2: overcome. My favorite songs is one of the songs sung by Qatr al-Dahir. Can she sing a teeny bit of it?
1: And truly, in Somalia during the 2000s, there were many things to worry about. Even the act of listening to music off a memory card was something
2: to worry about, which is why Hawa was careful. Yes, I used to listen, but I used to turn the volume low so nobody hears it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: The problem was Al-Shabaab, the Islamic extremist group that dominated large parts of the country. They didn't like music. In 2009, they banned music at weddings, banished musical ringtones, and started punishing people who listened to music on their mobile phones by making them swallow their memory cards. Then at some point, I guess, they figured best to go straight to the source. So extremists started targeting the musicians themselves. The famous soloist Aden Hassan Salat was shot and killed in a tea shop. Others were murdered in the street, attacked in their homes. But through all of that, Hawa kept listening and practicing, singing softly with her memory card, going over and over the songs, until her voice, she thought, sounded
2: just like Katra Dahir. Because Hawa had a dream. I just wanted to sing and become an entertainer.
3: For
1: most of her life, though, because of Al-Shabaab, that was a pretty far-fetched dream. But then in 2013, this unexpected and interesting opportunity emerged. Apparently, there was going to be a new reality television show, an American-style reality television show that would feature singing and all kinds
2: of singers competing. I was informed about this show from some friends of mine in the village. And as soon as I heard about it, I really wanted to be part of it and join. Knew she wanted to try out,
1: even though on another level, she had to admit that the idea of appearing on TV where anyone could see her singing really worried her. Can she explain what was she
2: worried and afraid of? Deaf.
4: This is Invisibilia. I'm Elise Spiegel. And I'm Hannah Rosen. Invisibilia is a show about all the invisible forces that shape human behavior, our thoughts, our beliefs, our expectations. And today we're telling the story of a life and death reality show in Somalia. But not just any old life and death reality show. This was a carefully planned international operation designed to influence the politics of Somalia. Part of something we're seeing more and more of in the world today. Foreign powers using popular media to influence the emotional climate and therefore the politics of another country. Today, we document an effort like this in Somalia, and we ask the question, can a reality show and telling a certain kind of story call a different kind of reality into being? Stick around. So Elise did the reporting on this next piece. She talked to all kinds of people who participated in the Somali reality show. Howell was one of those people, and we will get back to her. But Elise starts with an American who was there for much of the story and helped us report it. Rupa Goganeni.
1: When she was a sophomore at UPenn, Rupa fell in love with a world that had ceased to exist, fell immediately and hard in her late morning history class. Her professor had dimmed the light so he could show a photo essay he'd done in the late 70s. There on the screen was image after image of what looked, at least to
0: Rupa, like paradise. This beachside city, all of the homes are made of white coral. And there's flowers everywhere, Bougainville pouring over walls, and it's breathtaking. But it wasn't just the physical beauty of the place. The city looked like a hotbed
1: of cosmopolitan culture and fun. There were glamorous women smiling in colorful clothes, elegant men laughing and smoking. Which was so strange to Rupa, because she'd actually seen a whole movie about this exact same city. Black Hawk Down.
0: I need extra security on these zombies. I'll go. I'll take my team, make sure they get back okay. Do it.
5: Go, Go, go!
1: Chaos random death, horror. That was the Mogadishu Rupa knew about. She was amazed that a culture could change so completely. You'd never guess in a million years that it had once been totally different. Could that happen anywhere? And can a culture change back? Like, was there a city underneath the city of chaos and terror that was filled with people
0: who would smile and laugh like the people on the screen? And at that point, I was sort of... I knew that's where I wanted to go. So Rupa graduates,
1: moves to East Africa to become a photo and video journalist, and starts researching Somalia stories. And she finds plenty. There are all kinds of people, like the ones in the photos, doing interesting, non-terror-related activities. But editors weren't buying. They only wanted pirates, terrorism, and warlords.
0: And I felt pretty frustrated. So when I got the call, It was a pretty alluring prospect.
1: The call was from a friend of a friend who was involved in this very unusual communications company, one of the companies Rupa privately thought of as communications mercenaries because they were hired to tip the balance in conflict situations and war. The company was doing a project which, at least on its face, sounded to Rupa
0: slightly preposterous. He was like, we're making a TV series in Somalia a la American Idol. Um, are you
1: interested? But this wasn't just any American Idol style reality show the man was working on. It was an American Idol style reality show whose explicit
0: purpose was to fight Islamic terrorism. So this is the document that I was sent a few days after Communications Goals. Several days after the call, Rupa got this memo from the company contracted to make the
1: show. It was a series of neat bullet points, explicitly stating the purpose of the program.
0: Undercut messaging and brand appeal of armed extremist groups. Present resurgent culture due to increasing political stability. See, by this time, 2013, Al-Shabaab had been
1: mostly pushed out of the capital, Mogadishu. And there was a small flicker of hope in the air. There had even been an election, though not a fully democratic one, But the situation
0: was far from stable. The government at that point didn't have a huge amount of legitimacy. The new government that had been elected had
1: UN backing. But if it was going to survive, it needed to prove itself to the people. Show them that al-Shabaab no longer had power, so they were no longer living in a world where they could be brutally murdered for singing a song. But also that there was a new and beautiful path forward a modern, well-functioning society was
6: finally within reach. Hearts and minds. Hearts and minds from the 21st century does involve TV, radio, Snapchat. Also involves, um, you know, what's what we call today fake news. The toolkit is phenomenally more interesting.
1: This is Ben Parker, who was director of communications for the UN in Mogadishu at the time. It was the UN that was behind the reality television show – They provided the money and support to the company that had reached out to Rupa. They'd been tasked, as Ben told me, with supporting the Somali government.
6: And a reality show seemed just the ticket. The beauty of the reality show is that the form itself achieves some of your goals.
1: See, a reality show has many important elements that quietly but surely communicate to the audience important Western values. There's voting there's individual expression. So even in its form, it communicates a very different way of being.
6: Remind people who had every reason to despair that you could be creative and fair and also a judging panel that was able to be frank and not biased in involving men and women. And, you know, there was so many ingredients go into this because people, it was also an extremely corrupt country. Anyway, we thought, A show involving singing would make people happy and proud and would defend them psychologically from Al Shabaab.
1: This kind of indirect political messaging, Ben told me, is increasingly popular.
6: Those working in conflict, modern conflict now, are less and less convinced of the value of weapons and more and more convinced that other approaches can deliver the dividends.
1: As a journalist, Rupa had always been very wary of the strategic communications community or stratcoms, as it's called by people like Ben. But the upsides in this case did seem to outweigh the downsides. Rupa had a chance to make a difference, return Mogadishu to its former glory. I mean, it sounded really exciting. So Rupa signed up. How familiar were you with reality shows when you said yes?
0: Not at all. I don't think i had ever seen
1: American Idol. And so, Rupa did what many anti-extremist crusaders have doubtless done before her, though probably for slightly different reasons. She binged watched American Idol.
7: The pressure to shine each and every week is relentless. What have you decided? This is American Idol.
1: Were you just like, oh yeah, this is so... So going to fight Islamic
0: <laughs> extremism in Somalia. I think my first thought was: holy, shit, how are we gonna get a studio to look like that? But even though the idea of
1: producing a Simon Cowell-worthy set was daunting, Rupa's binge watching did yield a
0: useful insight. What this was all about, she decided. Was emotion. People like reality television, whether it's a show like American Idol or The Real World, because you see people being vulnerable. What she
1: needed, Rupa decided, was a mean judge. A mean judge would produce fear, which would produce struggle, and eventually joy. With those emotions, Rupa figured, she would own the audience, which of course is what Rupa needed to do to get Somalia to a better place. So essentially, like, the kind of Russian nesting dolls that you're building are, you need to provoke real emotion in the context of a fake reality show so that you can change
0: reality in the real world. Right. It's a lot of dolls inside other dolls.
4: Invisibilia will be back in a minute.
7: This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: Hey, everybody. Just wanted to let you know that Hannah and I will be on another fabulous NPR podcast on March 16th. It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders. I'm mostly just excited to have Aunt Betty say our names. Find It's Been a Minute
4: on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. This is Invisibilia. I'm Hannah Rosen. We're telling the story of a reality TV show that was created to fight Islamic extremism. The show, called Inspire Somalia, was funded by the U.N., and it included not just a singing competition, but a poetry competition, because poetry is incredibly popular in Somalia, and a shark tankish business pitch element. Elise continues the story with Mohamed Yahay, or Mo, a Somali born man who was hired to do the logistics. The first thing you need for a reality
1: show is contestants people who sing and perform and pitch business ideas in a way that makes the audience fall in love. The job of finding those people fell to Mo Yehe, and he was ready to do it. There was just one problem he felt with this entire project.
5: This is probably going to get somebody killed. (laughs) Um, I think that was one of the first things that came into my mind.
1: Like most Somalis, Mo knew people who had died in the Civil War. So he had a deep appreciation of exactly how devastating the wrath of al-Shabaab could be. And while the Americans shooting the show could be protected surrounded by armed men from the moment they set foot in the country until the second that they left. It was the people who couldn't load themselves onto a plane after the show wrapped that really concerned Mo.
5: He was worried about the contestants. I was constantly worried about after they leave and after the program is done, what is going to be the outcome for these people? Or are they going to be identified at their house while there are they are back to their lives and doing whatever they do, called and threatened, and certain actions might be taken upon them um, because of what we have presented. That was one of the main things that more or less kept me at night. But still, Mo had sympathy for the project.
1: He wanted his country to get to a better place. So he tried as best he could to make it work. One of the first tasks, obviously, was to hold open auditions. But in Somalia... Advertising an open audition for a reality show was kind of like giving the suicide bomber the actual street address of the party you're throwing.
5: Because if you do advertise it on the radio, then you're putting yourself on target. Um, so we had to think of in a creative way to actually to minimize the risk that would normally come to that.
1: His workaround was to get the word out. But to create logistics, that kept the actual audition
5: site secret. Go to that particular location, and there's going to be a bus waiting there. And take that bus. That bus is going to bring you where you need to go and present yourself.
1: Mo thought that the strangeness of the directions in the ad would dissuade people. But on the day of the audition, when he went to the location, turned out that people were not at all dissuaded.
5: The queue was really, really scary, um... At certain times, that we thought, oh, well, I thought to myself that uh, I think we bit more than we can chew right now, so we need to put a stop to this.
1: But there was no
5: putting a stop to it. The bus kept on going back and forth, kept on going back and forth.
1: Mo remembers making his way back to the gated compound where the buses dropped contestants and seeing people everywhere, sitting on the grass, lined down hallways. And he says he was just suddenly overcome with what this reality show represented.
5: I actually see them practicing, like they're warming up their vocal cords and, and, and working on their business ideas, or how do I present this, uh, that sense of fairness, that sense of it's his idea against my idea and let these people um, choose it and putting themselves out there. That, seeing that was also really, really something else. You mean it was really moving to you? Yeah, yeah. It actually gave me a sense of hope um, that the country is not and the people are not as damaged as people put it out or how the media normally um, covers it.
1: Maybe, Mo thought, this reality show could help change things. Maybe. In the meantime, though, there was the problem of the current reality. Which is why, though he couldn't disclose that the show was funded by the U.N., because if U.N. ties leaked out, they'd all instantly become targets, Mo and Rupa did make sure contestants were told just how public this reality show they wanted to join would be.
5: We identified a crystal clear that it was going to be on TV, radios, and all the broadcasting and channels as we had at that time.
1: Mo knew that every Somali would understand. From this simple description exactly how dangerous it was for them to participate. And in fact, more than one dropped out on the spot. But not everybody. For example, the young woman from a small village outside Mogadishu, Hawa Abdi Hassan, the one who during her day job at the market dreamed of becoming a singer like Katra Dahir, and so when she got home, would sing as she did her chores, softly practicing as she listened to music off a memory card. It hadn't been easy for Hawa to convince her family that showing up for the audition was a good idea. They feared that being associated with the show would
2: put her life at risk. Yes, my mom tried to stop me, told me, you can get killed for this. But I told her, it's okay, don't stop me. You know, what's meant for me? Will happen. Did you get permission? Yes, she gave me the permission.
1: And so, the morning of the audition, Hawa put on the fanciest dress she had and carefully did her makeup. Obviously, she was nervous. Who wouldn't be on the day of a big audition? But there was an additional layer with Hawa. Had she ever sung in public? before
2: inspire somalia maya maya yeah that was my first time before that before that i did not sing in public places habo had never sung in public for people other than
1: her immediate family and a very small group of friends in fact like many other people her age habo had never even seen a public performance of song it was too dangerous for the people singing for the audience and so as she went on, her hands were cold and shaking. But in her heart, she says,
2: she still felt happy. I was so grateful that, you know, I was even there to, 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 to sing, to show that I can sing.
1: Rupa remembers watching Hawa on the day of the audition and being struck instantly with her charisma.
0: She sort of had the whole package. I mean, she looked so put together. And I could see that she was sort of a natural performer.
1: There were a handful of other contestants who also stood out. And Rupa says she was pleased about how it was going, though there had been one event that deeply unsettled her. (sighs) This is tape Rupa recorded from one day when they were holding auditions for the Shark Tank portion of the show And in the late afternoon, this guy showed up. He was really keen to audition, but after Mo and Rupa explained that the show would be televised, he completely freaked out. He was shaking and crying, telling them he needed the prize money but was too afraid to audition because he'd already had a run-in with Shabab. In fact, Shabab was all over him, so he couldn't risk it. It was crazy intense. And so after he left, Rupa and Mo tried to hash out what to do.
0: Now we've told him about the project. He knows everything, basically. And Shabab is contacting him. I'm not saying that he's going to, like, run and tell them, but there's just so many... This isn't a very secret...
5: Or, or, he's actually one of them.
1: Maybe, Mo said... The man was actually an al-Shabaab plant, there to suss out the scene so they could plan a better attack. It seemed very possible to him. And actually, after the incident, the security people Mo had hired followed the man home and identified him, then told Mo that the man was a Shabab member, but was trying to find a way out.
5: That's the reason why I'm taking all these precautions. Though I'm constantly outside speaking to the security. I don't know about you, but I am definitely shaken. I'm shaken. Yeah,
1: same. That night, Rupa and Mo talked about calling the whole show off. But they worried they'd just be replaced with people who knew less about the situation and how to keep everybody safe, so they decided to stick it out. Turned out, though, they weren't the only people with second thoughts.
0: How many people have dropped
1: out of the show? Dozens. Four days before the shoot, Rupa and her director, Trevor Snap recorded this conversation. By that point, it was clear that though many Somalis would audition for a reality show, very few would actually put their lives on the line. People were dropping left and right. It was frustrating to Rupa, but she totally understood why they were ghosting and felt terrible about pushing Mo to pressure them.
0: I don't know. I just hate being like Mo, convince this guy to get on the show, whatever it whatever cost. I mean... If I wasn't in charge of making this show, I'd be like F- that show. <laughs> That's totally irresponsible and exploitative.
1: But Rupa and Mo pushed through, scraping together a cast, replacing everybody who dropped out, until finally the day arrived.
4: Okay, rolling, rolling
0: audio. Rolling video. Rolling
1: video. Mo says the morning of the filming, he woke up buzzing with anxiety.
5: Like a cravil pull. Two thoughts together. My main focus was just come out of this day as minimum damage as possible.
0: Rupa, on the other side of town, was worried too. The day of the competition, I woke up and just wanted everybody to be there. Just like on American Idol, there was a panel of famous musician judges,
1: but the number of contestants for the music part of the competition was much smaller. There were only three. The space where the competition was held also could not have been more different from American Idol. It was a dark, narrow conference room with low ceilings and more than a dozen armed men standing outside the door. Really, if you think about it for a minute, the whole thing is kind of ironic. In most American reality shows, producers work endlessly to manufacture a sense of drama. Somalia, though, was the opposite. Literally, the life of every person in that room was on the line. The trick was to disguise that fact so this whole crazy thing might work. And it did seem like it just might work when finally the female host they'd found, Zainab Abdi, this glowing young woman with blinding white teeth, took to the stage to welcome the audience.
0: The first person who comes up is Hawa. And... I remember at first, her music wasn't really turning on. And so that was, uh, we, had a, like, a, we had a lot of issues with sound. Um, anyway, so eventually the music started. And the audience
1: begins to clap along. Then Hawa began to sing. And finally, this voice that had been kept behind thick walls, restricted to the kitchen, bedrooms, bathrooms of her childhood home. Finally, that voice found its way to the light. True, there were a dozen men with guns standing just outside the door. But still, Rupa says once Hawa started to sing, the world began to tilt.
0: I think it was easy to forget in that room that this was a dangerous thing to do we were sort of surrounded by young laughing Somalis students and yeah and we were having a singing competition and you sort of forgot about the sort of bigger context and, and why this was so brave you know it didn't feel like some artificial creation or some some element of a strategic communication plan. It felt real. Uh, It felt like this transcendent space.
1: Of course, it was an artificial creation. A carefully designed and orchestrated operation funded by the UN. That was what this was— A strategic plan. So could it work? Can a reality show change reality? Can you call a different world into being by telling the right story?
3: It turns out this question has been systematically studied. I'm very interested in how we make the normal. How do we make the normal? How do people come to see the world around them as
1: an unremarkable fact, the way things are and should be? Betsy Levy-Palak, a psychologist at Princeton University, has tried to answer this question by studying the media. And the study of media influence actually stretches all the way back to the Second World War. But for most of that time, Betsy says, psychology's focus was extremely narrow. It was all rhetoric and no poetic. The way to change someone's behavior, psychologists assumed, was to change their ideas. And you did that through argument or rhetoric. But starting in the 90s, Betsy says poetics started gaining ground because psychologists
3: realized that people consumed stories in this qualitatively different way. Their defensiveness is disabled. Their counter-arguing is at rest. See, when you're listening to a story, like, for example,
1: the one you are listening to right this minute, there are so many
3: things they have to do to keep up. We're trying to do a lot of things. We're trying to picture what's going on, anticipate what will happen next. It really engages us to, to listen to a story, whereas um, we're engaged in different ways when we listen to an argument. We assess whether we believe each ass- assertion and we measure up what we're hearing with what we think. What Betsy wanted to understand was whether this difference in
1: how we consumed stories translated into any changes in
3: what we thought and how we behaved. And so she decided to do an experiment. The study that I ran was one of the first studies to treat a radio program, a a media intervention, uh, kind of like a, a medical trial. The study took place from 2004 to 2005 in Rwanda,
1: a country still reeling from brutal genocide. Researchers had theorized that part of what had created the genocide was, in fact, the media, specifically a hate radio station called RTLM that encouraged
3: violence in this very particular way. It set the tone. It communicated to people that this is something that the entire country is involved with right now and that you would actually be on the outs if you were not participating in violence and and looting. Um, So it seems as though people could behave in violent ways, not because there's animus and hatred in their hearts, but because they feel as though that's what is expected.
1: Betsy wanted to see if you could move behavior towards greater tolerance if you had those messages embedded in a similar way in a different popular radio program. So she hooked up with this organization that was in the process of creating a new radio soap opera, a Romeo and Juliet-style romance between a boy and a girl from warring ethnicities. And what Betsy found after a
3: year of studying communities randomly assigned to listen to the soap opera? What it boiled down to was that despite the fact that people loved this program, it did not change how they personally felt about violence and reconciliation. But they did state that the the program changed the way they thought about Rwandan society and about what Rwandans in general should do now. So it didn't change their beliefs, but it did change their perceptions of norms. And at the same time, it changed their behavior, which is why I thought that this was something significant. Let me repeat that. It didn't change their beliefs.
1: It changed their behaviors, by changing what they considered to be the social norm, what they thought their neighbors believed and did.
3: That is a sobering idea. Yeah, this is a very uncomfortable thought. We like to think that all of our behaviors flow from our convictions, and what we do is a reflection of who we are and what we think, but we're constantly tuning ourselves to fit in with the social world around us. Oftentimes in ways that we can't even identify, we're just trying not to stand out. So what this work suggests is that if you change
1: someone's perception of what constitutes the social norm, like you convince people that the world is safe enough to sing in public, even though in reality there are a dozen armed men standing just outside the door, then you might just change what they actually do in their day-to-day lives. They might after seeing such a show, themselves decide to attend a concert because clearly it's safe enough. Or maybe they decide that they too will start a business. And in that way, you move the needle. Now, Betsy hasn't specifically looked at reality television, but she says reality shows and radio soap operas are similar.
3: It's all storytelling. You know, it's people's stories. It's it's their lives. It's narrative.
1: Do you think the government's should be
3: doing these kinds of interventions? I think that they should. It depends on what kind of government, but governments that are accountable um, could be very good agents to initiate programming like this. Do you think that foreign governments should
1: be doing these kinds of interventions?
5: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: I think that becomes really tricky. But foreign governments are
1: doing these kinds of programs. The U.N. is doing these kinds of programs, the U.S. And, of course, last year, there was the small matter of the Russians and the U.S. election. There's been a lot of debate about how much Russian tinkering actually affected things. But to Betsy, it's not at all hard to guess what they were going for.
3: I think, in in some ways, they really purposefully engineered new perceptions of how common interracial strife uh, was, or or how um, pervasive hatred for Hillary Clinton was. That is norms engineering. Uh, that that right there, um, you know, comes straight out of the dictator's playbook.
1: Straight out of the dictator's playbook and into American life. An emotional terrorist attack concocted in Russia. Of course, when you turn the situation around and think about the UN's attempts at norms engineering in Somalia, it feels really different. So is norms engineering right or is norms engineering wrong?
4: Invisibilia will be back in a minute.
7: This message comes from NPR sponsor Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Made in supplies chefs with high-end cookware because Made in makes exactly what demanding chefs look for. When you level up your cooking, remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're Made in Maiden. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit maidencookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the Launch Your Online Shop stage to the First Real Life Store stage, all the way to the Did We Just Hit a Million Orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas, and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR.
1: Hey, I want to tell you about another podcast we love. It's called Planet Money, and it is not just about money. Planet Money gets intimate human stories that explain big ideas. So give it a try, NPR One,
4: or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Invisibilia I'm Hanna Rosen. today we're looking at the relationship between the stories we tell and reality by telling the story of a reality TV show Inspire Somalia was funded by the UN its literal goal change reality for Somali citizens by undermining Islamic extremism Elise picks up the story in the middle of the singing competition don't I cry for my heart and get goosebumps
1: all over those are the words Hawa sang as she stood on the small stage at the front of the conference room in the video of her performance you see she slightly sways as she sings she looks the way she felt like someone who has finally been able to do the thing she's always dreamed of doing (laughs) after Hawa The two other contestants had their turn, both men. One had a father who was a famous musician, and the second, Mustafa, was a well-trained musician who'd actually composed his own song.
5: And
0: the judges and the audience, they were going crazy, very into Mustafa.
1: After they finished came the part of the show that was supposed to serve as a democracy demonstration, the voting. Ballots were distributed to the audience and judges. And for a minute, the room was quiet. In this small conference room in the middle of Mogadishu, people bent over their ballots and considered the options before them. The son of the famous musician, the market girl who practiced at home with the volume turned low, the boy who wrote his own song. In that room, they consulted their hearts, weighed strengths and weaknesses, and then marked the paper in their laps.
0: And Mustafa ended up winning. The audience votes and the and the judges' votes. And Mustafa was the best. Mustafa.
1: <clears> Habo <throat> says she, she was honestly not upset about not winning the prize. For her, just the act of singing in front of a large audience for the first time was enough. Maya, I was very happy. I was happy as... Like I was born that day. In the end, Inspire Somalia aired on many different Somali television and radio stations. And the response, according to Mo, was powerful. As soon as the show finished airing, he says he got a call from one of the managers at the main television station.
5: He said that people kept on calling them and saying that when is the next one going to come? Can we have more? The audience are asking me, they want to see more of these people present. Can we get more of it?
1: It was nice to hear. But for Mo, the moment the success of the show really hit home was when he went to the airport to fly to Nairobi and realized, after he took a seat at the gate, that the men sitting next to him were in a heated argument about who should have won the poetry part of Inspire Somalia.
5: And he was literally. Um He was really, really shouting to his friends to say that he should have won. There's no way. You don't know anything. You don't know nothing about poetry.
1: You know you've been successful when you hear people smack-talking their friends about poetry. In fact, Hawa is now a bit famous. She told me people occasionally recognize her on the street. But more importantly, she's been able to become an actual singer. She has a job singing with a professional choir. Because Shabab is still a force in Somalia, this means she's still at risk. She says she tries not to worry too much, but is often spooked when she sees a car slow down when she's walking.
2: Yes, it happens a lot. My heart, like, starts pumping. My heart starts beating fast she says she hears the same from
1: other contestants who participated in Inspire Somalia. Most of the time, they watch behind their backs. But though there have been serious threats, as far as we know, no one's been hurt. And for her part, Hawo seems unwilling to retreat from the line of fire. You get the sense that she will take her singing career as far as she can, it's like the experience of being able to express herself in public has changed her. And now, no matter the cost,
2: she's ready to sing. Yes, it is dangerous. But if the young person doesn't stand up for his country and do what's right, how is, he, how is he helping his country? Even Mo, the man who originally thought this whole thing was just a very
1: efficient way to get a bunch of innocent people killed— said the experience made him hopeful.
5: There is another alternative that is on the table. It doesn't have to be as business as usual. Things can change, but it just requires a bit of courage as well as a lot of creativity.
1: Which brings us to the final and maybe most important question. Did this reality show, all the risk and trouble, actually change reality? It would be impossible to make the case that Somalia is a completely different country now. It isn't. But there have been some real changes. I heard a wide range of opinions about how to characterize things there, which means, of course, that I have a wide range of options in terms of how to tell the end of this story to you. I could choose, as most Western media does, to focus on the negative— Like how several months ago, Al-Shabaab staged a massive attack in downtown Mogadishu that killed more than 500 people and created a scene of terrible devastation. Choosing to tell that story would reinforce to you that problems are intractable, that things don't change very much, and when they do, it's not because of a reality television show. And that's true. Or anyway, it's as true as any story is true. It's partially true. But that's not how I'm going to end this. I prefer a different partially true story, one I heard from Mo, which is that though progress in Somalia is slow,
5: it's real. There is a sense of life. There is a sense of uh, busyness or integration that is taking place Um and all this is just on the sheer will of the people. They're desperate to actually move things forward and get and get into a, pe- a better position for the country.
1: Rupa seems to agree. Though she doesn't think Inspire Somalia can be seen as the cause, she would never claim that kind of credit for it. She did have this to say about the place she first fell in love with as a sophomore in college. It feels like the city has been reborn. One small piece of evidence of that change has to do with music, as Mo told me. Today, is it possible to hear singing in public?
5: Yes. It's one of the things that I can actually say that has substantially has a huge change into the ground. These days, That every cafeteria has radio playing, music's playing, yes. And
1: what does it mean to you personally to hear music in the streets? In fact, we wanted to share with you a small bit of that progress in musical form. So a few weeks ago, we asked a producer in Mogadishu to go out and find us music to record. That's what we offer you now. A song recently performed at a hotel cafe in the Lido Beach area. It's such a small thing, a song. But listening to it, I can't help think how many people were required to make it happen. The singer, of course, and also the cafe. But there were likely other people behind the song as well. Forces large and small, seeking through the song to tell a new story. I imagine that new story spinning out of the singer's mouth, floating through the air, bending all the norms around it, shaping them subtly with the curve of a musical phrase.
4: That's Elise Spiegel. Stay tuned for a sneak preview of next week's episode. Here is Somali musician R. Monta. Invisibilia is hosted by me, Hannah Rosen. And me, Elise Spiegel. Our show is edited by Anne Gudenkoff. Kara Tallow is the executive producer. Invisibilia is produced by Megan Kane, Yoe Shaw, and Abby Wendell. Our project manager is Leanna Simstrom. Lulu Miller is a contributing editor. We had
1: help from Alex Chang, Rebecca Ramirez, Mark Mehmet, Micah Ratner, Bryn Winterbottom, Hillary McClellan, Nancy Shute, Meredith Rizzo, Mark Silver, and Will Dobson. Our technical director is Andy Huther, and our vice president of programming
4: is Anya Grunman. Special thanks to Abdurazak Dorhe, Trevor Snap, Dekha Salhan, Mohammed Abukar, Hassan Abukar, Faduma Ibrahim, Louis Brook for his helpful insights, and Rupa Goganeni for gathering tape and sharing her recordings. Also thanks to Vic Sophini from Astinato Records for letting
1: us use songs from Sweet as Broken Dates and R. Monta for his beautiful music, additional music for this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about this music and see original artwork from Sarah Wong for this episode, visit www.npr.org/slash/invisibilia.
7: This message comes from NPR sponsor VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center, who, as an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center in the country's top four percent, is unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. MasseyCancerCenter.org/slash/comprehensive. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast, On Investing. Each week, you'll get thoughtful, in-depth analysis of both the stock and the bond markets. Listen today and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR and the following message come from our sponsor, Whole Foods Market. Host a celebratory brunch for less with 365 by Whole Foods Market. Featuring wallet-happy finds like cold smoked Atlantic salmon and more.
1: Next time on Invisibilia, when C.C. Wong first met the man who was renting a room in his mom's house, he thought it was nice for her to have some company. But then C.C. started to notice some weird things.
7: All the things we talked about uh, in the letters or the telephone calls. He knew everything about us. But he
1: didn't say anything to his mother, even after he got a strange
7: phone call. I said there was something really funny. Somebody uh, called and asked if this is Station 57. And uh, Mr. Drew said, no, it's not funny. This is uh, Station 57.
1: What is not said in our relationships and the misunderstandings and mysteries that can follow? That's next
4: time... On Invisibilia. And now, in honor of this musical episode, a musical moment of non zen. I feel really compelled to sing for you now,
1: Um, but maybe I won't. Please. Okay. I have a little auto. It's cute as it can be. And when I drive around in it, I'm very, very happy. I have a little auto. Join us
4: next week
1: for more Invisibilia. Hey, so in addition to our stories, Invisibilia creates all sorts of cool, original digital content around each episode on NPR.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter to see photo essays, read Q&As with our experts, and learn more about the topics we discuss every week. You can also sign up for our newsletter at NPR.org slash newsletter slash Invisibilia.
7: REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co op or rei.com for the million and one ways to opt outside.
4: Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened, we tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes.